0: Hi listeners, it's Delia D'Ambra. Summer is here and I'm back with my hit podcast Park Predators to uncover mysteries from some of the world's most picturesque destinations you wouldn't expect because it turns out, sometimes the most beautiful places hide the darkest secrets. In this brand new season of Park Predators, I'm taking you beyond the beauty of these natural wonders like never before, from the iconic Grand Canyon to the plains of Zambia, and so many places in between, all with chilling stories from the most unique places on Earth. So no matter where you're off to this summer season, new episodes of Park Predators are out every Tuesday all summer long. Listen to Park Predators now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: That's dot com. If I tell you to close your eyes and picture a white-collar criminal, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Did you picture a mild-mannered accountant? Or maybe a white-haired Bernie Madoff look-alike playing golf at Club Fed? If you didn't visualize a violent criminal, you're definitely not alone. The FBI and law enforcement specifically define white-collar crime as non nonviolent crime committed for financial gain. The agency writes on his website that white-collar crimes are characterized by deceit, concealment, or violation of trust, but are not dependent on the application or threat of physical force or violence. But experts say there's another subgroup of offenders who are never discussed in mainstream media, the white-collar criminals who kill. These are the real-life American psychos, They start out just like any other white-collar criminal. They con a friend into a Ponzi scheme, steal from a boss, or blackmail a lover. But when someone finds out about their fraud, or worse, threatens to expose it, red-collar criminals lash out with extreme violence, and even murder. And their victims are almost always people closest to them— co-workers, friends, and family. This week, we're taking a look at a case that experts consider a textbook example of red-collar crime. The brutal axe murder of Peter Porco and the attack on his wife Joan that shook the sleepy small town of Del Mar, New York. It quickly becomes clear that this case isn't so much a who-done it as a why-done it. And it's also a window into the mind of a red-collar psychopath. As you listen, ask yourself, could you have a red-collar criminal hiding in your office? Or maybe even living in your house? To solve this murder, we have to follow the money, even when it leads us to some really dark places. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. On November 15, 2004, 52-year-old Peter Porco and his wife, 54-year-old Joan Porco, were asleep at home in Del Mar, New York, when an intruder crept into their bedroom in the middle of the night carrying an axe. Peter was a court clerk for the New York State Appellate Division, so when he didn't show up for work the next day, his colleagues immediately knew that something was very wrong. A co-worker went to his home at 36 Broccoli Drive to check on Peter. He saw blood on the doorknob, and as soon as he pushed the unlocked door open, he saw Peter's body lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. The Porcos' quiet, leafy street immediately turned into a crime scene that could have come straight out of a horror movie. The killer had viciously attacked Peter, bludgeoning him 16 times in the head with the ax and almost decapitating him. But despite his critical brain injuries, Peter actually got out of bed, pulled clothes over his open wounds, and headed downstairs. The forensic team was able to track Peter's last movements by following the blood trail from the bathroom sink to the dishwasher to the kitchen. They figured out that Peter, in a state of shock and confusion, was trying to go through his daily routine. Forensic Files did an episode on the case and explained that Peter's frontal lobes of the brain, which control logic and reasoning, were severely damaged in the attack. So Peter was guided by the underlying paleocortex, which meant that he was moving through the house basically on automatic pilot. Everywhere he touched, he left behind pools of blood. On the mirror where it looked like he was trying to shave, on the dishwasher, on a sandwich bag he used for brown bag lunches, and on paperwork at the kitchen table. There was some blood on the phone too. It looked like at some point, Peter realized that he was dying and tried to dial 911, but he never got through because the killer had cut the phone lines. Peter finally collapsed at the bottom of the stairs where he bled to death the emergency response team found Joan upstairs, still lying in the blood-drenched bed. She had been hit three times with the three-foot fireman's ax. Police found it under the covers. In a horrific attack that knocked one of her eyes out, broke her jaw, and cracked her skull to expose her brain. Medics actually had difficulty finding her mouth. That's how bad her injuries were. But incredibly, Joan was still breathing. As the paramedics are fighting to save Joan's life, Bethlehem Police Department Detective Christopher Bowdish is rushing to the crime scene. Now, Detective Bowdish knew the family. Peter and Joan, an elementary school speech therapist, had been happily married for 30 years, and they had no known enemies. The couple had two sons, 23-year-old Jonathan, who was in the Navy and stationed on a submarine at the time of the attack, and Christopher, a 21-year-old student at the University of Rochester. On the surface, they looked like a picture-perfect family, But from the beginning, as Detective Bowdish is assessing the scene, he suspects the killer is someone close to home. First of all, nothing had been stolen. There was no sign of forced entry. The spare key, which was normally hidden nearby, was sticking out of the front door. Also, the family's golden retriever, Barrister, was in the basement, unhurt and wagging his tail when detectives got down there. The Porco home had an alarm system, and the security pad had been smashed. But detectives later figured out that the keypad was broken after the four-digit code was punched in, probably to disguise the fact that the killer was someone who knew the Porco family code. Detective Bowdish asked Joan point-blank whether her son Jonathan was involved. He insists that she shook her head to indicate no. Then he asked her, was it Chris? This time, Bowdish said that she nodded her head and used hand movements to indicate yes. But Chris had no history of violent behavior and his parents appeared to give him everything he wanted. Could this clean-cut college kid really have turned into an ax murderer? Less than two hours after his parents' bodies were found, the detectives issued an all-points bulletin. They were on the hunt for Chris Borco. Police were processing the crime scene at the Porco home, where Peter had just been found brutally murdered. Joan Porco was in the hospital, fighting for her life. And detectives are digging deeper into Chris Porco's dark secrets and finding out that he'd actually been leading a double life. To his friends at school, Chris portrayed himself as a trust fund kid with money to burn. He said he came from a wealthy family and told tales of million-dollar deals, real estate holdings, and a house on North Carolina's exclusive Outer Banks. In reality, prosecutors say that Chris was around $40,000 in debt at the time of Peter's murder. Frank Perry is an attorney who teaches fraud examination and forensic accounting at DePaul University. He coined the phrase red-collar crime after working on a murder case in 2005 in which his client, a quiet man with no history of violence, got caught embezzling from his business partner and then killed him with a hammer. And after that, Perry started doing some deep dives into red-collar crime, He wrote an article with Terrence Lichtenwald, and they proposed that red-collar crime be added to the FBI criminal classification manual. Perry also has a nickname for red-collar kills. He calls them fraud detection homicide. According to the Forensic Examiner, red-collar criminals share some basic characteristics. First of all, we should not be misled by the fact that they may not yet have been charged with anything involving physical violence. These men, and women, are absolutely capable of lashing out if someone finds out about their fraud. Secondly, the victims do not have to be someone who participated in the fraud. Often they're innocent victims themselves. Third, and this part is really important, red-collar criminals have a history of antisocial and psychopathic tendencies. So, in Chris's case, detectives were quickly figuring out that Chris wasn't a trust fund baby. He was actually funding his lifestyle another way, by stealing from his parents. The Porcos' homes had been broken into twice, in November 2002 and in July 2003. Police said that Chris staged both burglaries, according to Brendan Lyons, who covered the case extensively in the Albany Times Union. Detectives said Chris stole Macintosh and Dell laptop computers, which he would later turn around and try to sell on eBay. Chris also defrauded his eBay customers. Sometimes he would collect their money and then just never send the items they bought. Then when the customers would complain, Chris posed as his brother Jonathan. He would email them from Jonathan's account and tell them that his brother Chris had died and couldn't send their electronics. There was also another burglary at the veterinary hospital where Chris worked. The items that were stolen there included a cell phone that belonged to one of the owners, a digital camera, and a camcorder. Detectives say that Chris sold items matching those descriptions just a few weeks later on eBay. And they found the stolen cell phone in a safe belonging to Chris in the Porcos garage after Peter's murder. So the evidence against Chris is building, and at the same time, a string of emails sent between January and November 2004, when Peter was murdered, show that Chris's attempts to dig out of the financial hole he'd gotten into were getting desperate. It all started after the fall 2003 semester, when Chris had to drop out of the University of Rochester because of his bad grades. So he enrolled in the community college, but he was flunking his classes there too. This time he had a plan. He forged his transcripts, changing the grades to A's and B's so the University of Rochester would readmit him. Actually worked, and the university took him back. But meanwhile, he had another problem because he had lied to his parents. He told them he would not owe the University of Rochester any money for that semester because a professor had lost one of his final exams from the semester before. His parents actually believed the story, but now Chris needed money to cover the $30,000 fall tuition plus the payments on the Jeep and some online gambling debts. A few weeks before Peter's murder, Chris applied online for a high-interest loan of $31,000. Now, Chris had told his dad that he needed information from him so he could take out a $2,000 loan for school supplies. But this time, Peter put his foot down. He said he could advance Chris some cash, but he did not want to co-sign on a loan. So Chris went ahead and forged Peter's signature on the online loan documents. Peter Porco found out about that forgery on November 4th, 11 days before his murder. Emails presented at the trial show that Peter was livid. I did not authorize credit on a $31,000 loan, wrote Peter. I've not even signed a loan instrument. Did you forge my signature as a cosigner? What the hell are you doing? Peter called Citibank and the University of Rochester. He told him to stop payments on the loan and the tuition. You have a lot of explaining to do, he wrote to his son. It's time to stop the BS and call me at the office right away. Dad. The next day, Peter found out that Chris had forged his name on a car loan application also. I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability. Things are obviously spinning out of control with you. I think you should come home so we can talk. At 1.14 a.m. on November 9th, Chris wrote a final email to his dad. I'm very sorry for not communicating with you recently, he wrote. I feel like for the first time in my life, I really have a handle on schoolwork. I cannot apologize enough for the you've been through in the past couple weeks. My intentions were exactly the opposite. Thank you so much for everything. And again, I'm so very sorry for all you've been through. I love you guys, love Chris. So the university wanted their missing tuition money. Creditors were calling and his parents were threatening to cut him off and go to the police. The walls were closing in on Chris Porco. Police believed that Chris had his eye on Peter and Jones' life insurance policies, which were worth about a million dollars combined. But Frank Perry said that for Chris, and red-collar criminals in general, the primary motive for the murder is the threat of being exposed. In Fraud Detection Homicide, the material gain predates the murder, Perry wrote in the International Journal of Psychological Studies. So unlike murders where someone sets up a spouse and kills them for insurance money, for example, red-collar criminals have already stolen from their victims. From the moment that Chris's parents threatened to cut him off and stop funding his parasitic lifestyle, their lives were in danger. Peter's final email to his son read, We may be disappointed in you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. We can't help you problem solve without information and input from you. Dad. Less than two weeks later, he was dead. The Porco murder shook the small town of Del Mar. Everyone was obsessed with this case. People were talking about it at work, at church, in line at the grocery store. And public opinion was totally divided. It became like an upstate New York, middle-class version of the Menendez brothers' case. People compared it to Lyle and Eric Menendez, who were convicted of the 1989 shotgun murders of their parents, Jose and Kitty in Beverly Hills. The morning after the murder, a reporter from the Times Union called Chris's dorm, they were hoping to get a quote from his roommate, but what they didn't realize was that Chris was actually there, and he had not been told about his parents' murder yet by police. Another psychopathic trait we talk about a lot is the lack of emotion, which is very evident here in this audio clip.
0: That's on police suspect,
2: you North. Hi, um, my name is Chris Borgo. I was just called by the Times union saying that
1: my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. Hey, Chris,
0: whereabouts are you?
1: I'm at school in Rochester, New York.
0: Okay, are, are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm
2: name or...?
1: Um, it's called Monroe.
2: Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union?
1: Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything.
2: Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you.
1: Okay,
0: uh, now as far as, when was the last time you said you came down to saw your parents?
1: Uh, about three weeks ago. I, it was on the weekend. I can't give you a date, I, I have to figure it out, I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah.
0: Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, well, you emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response?
1: Yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. My um, dad like at work. Okay. About uh, college loan stuff. Okay.
0: You're going to go right to Albany Med?
1: Uh, I I don't know. I don't even know where my mom is.
0: Yeah, she is at Albany Med.
1: Okay. Do do you know her condition? uh,
0: No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. Okay. Because when you get there, I'll come and see if there's anything I can do for you.
1: Okay. All right? Yeah.
2: Okay. Thanks.
1: Yep. Bye bye.
2: Detective suspected Chris right from the beginning but he had an alibi. Chris told police that on the night his parents were murdered, he was at the University of Rochester, 230 miles away. He claimed that he gave up the bed in his dorm room for a visiting resident advisor from his fraternity, and he slept on a couch in one of the dorm's common rooms. But police were gathering evidence to support an alternative theory. They believed Chris offered his bed to his fraternity brother to help establish an alibi. Then, They say he drove the 230 miles from Albany to his parents' home, disabled the alarm at 2.14 a.m., then attacked them, cleaned up, cut the phone lines at 4.49 a.m. Then they say he drove back to campus just in time to be spotted out jogging around the university shortly after 8 a.m. Police were collecting evidence to support that timeline. Security cameras at the university recorded a yellow Jeep Wrangler matching Chris's vehicle's description, leaving the campus at 10.30 p.m. on November 14th and returning shortly after 8 a.m. on November 15th. A toll collector told police that a yellow Jeep Wrangler passed through his station outside Rochester at around 10.45 p.m. And detectives found no record of Chris's Easy Pass being used. But, working on the theory that he may have paid cash, they meticulously poured through the toll tickets from the night of the murder that would fit the timeline and found DNA skin cells on one of them that were a match. It was mitochondrial DNA, so not unique like nuclear DNA, But they were able to figure out that Chris, along with 0.04% of the population, shared the characteristics of that DNA sample. So it did narrow it down. It wasn't a perfect match, but again, this is all narrowing it down. One of the Porco's neighbors told police that he thought he saw Chris's yellow Jeep in the family's driveway on the night of the attack. It's ironic because it's that loud, bright yellow Jeep that Chris was so obsessed with. And in the end, it ended up kind of being his undoing. Chris stuck to his story. Because he'd given up his bed, Chris told police that he crashed out on a couch in a common room at the university. Now this is an area with a lot of students running around at all hours of the night, yet no one seemed to remember seeing Chris there. On the surface, the case looks compelling, but it's still completely circumstantial. The bottom line is that the Bethlehem Police Department had no direct physical evidence linking Chris Porco to the attack on his parents they found no fingerprints on the ax and not a drop of blood in Chris's Jeep. There was no smoking gun in this case, just a trail of broken promises and angry emails. This is why experts, including Frank Perry, have suggested that forensic accountants and fraud examiners could be crucial to homicide investigation teams where money is a motive. In fraud investigations, we learn about something called the fraud triangle. So it's made up of three sides, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. Let's say you have an employee of a company. And he's got some personal problems, maybe he has some gambling debt. There's the pressure. He knows that his boss is not double-checking the invoices that he's sending out, so he sees opportunity. And to rationalize it, maybe he tells him something like, yeah, I'm underpaid anyway at this job, I'm not really valued. So you have all three of these conditions. Rationalization, pressure, opportunity. So let's look at Chris's case. Chris's past behaviors show that he has no problem justifying stealing from, and lying to, the people closest to him. We can see from the emails that the pressure was building, and since his parents were cutting him off, that window of opportunity was closing fast. Police took Chris in for questioning. Now keep in mind, this is hours after his father's homicide. His mother's in the hospital fighting for her life in a medically induced coma. Yet Chris displays zero emotion.
1: Your parents were upset. Without a doubt, they were very upset you, and they wanted to see you. They ordered you to come home. They did not order you. Your father says things were spinning out of control for you. Mm-hmm. And if he ever used to forge his name to another credit document, mm-hmm. he was going to turn you into a place for forgery. That's harsh. That's balanced. That was, that's, that's a date on that. That was a while ago. ago. So he finds out about Sula, and he finds out about something else. He found out that he was a cosigner on that auto loan, right? Mm-hmm. Which he already knew about. Wow! Well, well, he, that he misunderstood the way things work. The attorney. Hmm? The attorney. The last 30 years, misunderstood the way things work. And an application? It was not a check, actually? You've got your father running his own credit history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I... I yeah, I'm not man, proud of that. why the hell going on? And They're I've not control. I've known your father long enough that these are very harsh work. So no, I, 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 just, I agree with you. Dan. Oh, Chris, you're in control. If I had to run my credit history every time my kid walked out the door, I'd be freaking going insane. If I can't trust my own kid, I can't trust my own kid. I can't trust my own kid. I'm not saying that's the reason. I'm not saying that's the reason, Look at what's going on here. Put yourself in, in our shoes here. Look, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a family coming unraveled. They're coming unglued.
2: As a licensed private investigator, I've received a lot of training in how to interview a potential suspect. One of the most well-known tactics, and the one that's been widely used by many police departments, the FBI and CIA over the years, is called the Reed Technique. It's developed by John E. Reed & Associates, Incorporated. This is a variation of the suspect sitting in a small room with a cop firing questions at him that have become kind of a trope of detective shows and movies. So, the Reed Technique involves several steps, but it kind of goes like this. The investigator gets the suspect in a room, asks some baseline questions, and then leaves the room and comes back, and then lays out this damning evidence against the suspect, which can be totally made up, by the way. Some of the read instructors use empty folders with nothing in them. The idea is to play on a suspect's emotions and their fear. In the final interrogation phase, the goal is to get the suspect to confess. If they try to deny they did anything wrong, you're taught to interrupt them. But this technique has a lot of critics. According to an article in The New Yorker, a lot of people believe this can actually force people into making false confessions. And critics also say these high-pressure techniques just don't work on everyone, including people with mental disabilities and also psychopaths. In fact, Frank Perry says the Porco case should be used as an example of how not to conduct an interview when the suspect is a red-collar criminal. He said the transcript of the interview should be studied so law enforcement agencies can better learn how to deal with this type of psychopath. With red-collar crime, it becomes especially important for investigators not to project their emotions onto the offense. In fact, red-collar criminals don't display intense emotion before, during, or after their crimes. That's why you can hear during the interview the detectives are talking about this frenzied crime scene. They're getting very emotional. Chris remains coolly detached. So how can police better spot these psychopaths? Experts say that instead of forcing a confession, Police should focus on just getting the red-collar suspect to open up. Narcissus' favorite subject is themselves, and at some point the inconsistencies in the story will appear if you just let him keep talking. Detectives charged Christopher Porco with second-degree murder and attempted murder for the attack on his mother. Unfortunately, the jury would never get a chance to see the interrogation tape, because after a judge ruled that the officers had violated Christopher's Miranda rights by continuing to question him after he invoked his right to counsel... His entire police interview got thrown out of court. And the prosecution suffered another setback. They lost their only witness. Because against all odds, Joan Porco survived. She came out of her coma and started talking. But now she said she had no memory of the attack. She stood by her son completely. She paid his $250,000 bail, and Chris Porco was set free. Chris's defense attorney tried to portray his client as just a normal college kid who was having some problems. But experts say that Chris had displayed many personality traits of a psychopath for his entire life, including pathological lying, the conning and manipulation, parasitic lifestyle. And while he was out on bail, they said he continued to display impulsive and irresponsible behavior. He was seen out and about, hitting bars and clubs in his signature yellow jeep, pounding beers, and taking selfies with a string of young female admirers. Detectives spent countless hours interviewing the people in Chris's life, including a lot of his friends. And while most of them described him as a nice, mild-mannered guy, a few of them were starting to admit that they'd seen flashes of his temper. Friends said that as the financial pressure increased before his dad's murder, he started drinking more heavily. He even threatened to kill a female classmate who was teasing him and choked another classmate at a party. The Porco case became one of the most high-profile murders the region had ever seen. Everyone was obsessed with it. It's been covered in thousands of articles. It's even been the subject of a lifetime movie called Romeo Killer. Chris's trial finally began on June 27, 2006. He walked into court with his mother, Joan, holding his arm. And now Chris's attorney had to answer a question for the jury. If Chris didn't kill his parents, who did? He suggested that Peter's murder could have a link to organized crime. This came from the fact that Peter had a great uncle who was allegedly a member of the Banano crime family, nicknamed Frankie the Fireman Porco. Could Frankie have been some kind of a mob snitch and the axe a sinister calling card? Prosecutors hit back. They pointed out that Frankie was in federal prison because he did not cooperate with authorities. They also claimed, by the way, that it was ridiculous that a professional mob hitman would have gone to kill two people without bringing a weapon and just used what he found in the couple's garage. Chris's lawyer also described the Bethlehem police as incompetent. He referred to them as a police department that chases skateboarders away from the 7-Eleven. This is not the FBI, he said. Again, he tried to hammer home the lack of physical evidence. How could Chris have killed his parents and left not a single drop of blood behind? Prosecutors pointed out that Chris had worked for a veterinarian. He knew how to scrub up and wear gloves and clean up thoroughly after surgeries. But really, the central question in Chris's trial came down to, could the jury buy the fact that Chris could have done this to his parents? His attorneys said no, and they kept pointing out the fact, even though he had stolen things in the past, he had no history of violent behavior. Now, this is a characteristic that's common to a lot of red-collar criminals, and it's one that experts and family members really struggle to understand. One of Chris's other defense attorneys said at a talk 15 years after the murders that was given by the Albany Times Union that she had struggled to see Chris as a killer due to the fact that he'd never previously committed a violent crime. She said, people don't wake up in the morning and become violent just because they overdraw their checking account. This is one characteristic that is common to many red-collar criminals that experts, family members, and really smart professionals really fail to understand sometimes. That's because red car criminals aren't doing something that's out of character. The violent act is their character. It's a carefully planned solution to what they perceive as their problem, which in Chris's case was his parents. The capacity for that violence has actually been in them all along, but it's only brought out when their status and money, which they often view as their entire identity, gets threatened. In the end, Chris was found guilty of second-degree murder for killing Peter and attempted murder for his attack on Joan. On December 12, 2006, Judge Jeffrey Berry sentenced Chris to 50 years to life on each count. He will be eligible for parole in 2052. At the sentencing, Peter Porco's sister had a letter for the court. It read in part, I've been horrified to learn through the course of the investigation that Peter's last days were spent in anguish as he discovered the magnitude of the betrayal that was taking place. That is bad enough. But what is hardest of all is imagining his terror at being awakened in the night in his own bed to the repeated crushing blows of an ax, and most likely to the agonized screams of his wife. I will never stop wondering what was happening to Peter as he lay in that blood-soaked bed with his brutally injured wife beside him. Today, Chris Porco is behind bars in the Clinton County Correctional Facility. He continues to maintain his innocence. In 2010, his lawyers petitioned for a new trial, which was denied. Joan Porco stood by her son throughout the trial and continues to defend him to this day. So what can we learn from Chris Porco's case? Since we now know that red-collar criminals often turn on those closest to them, how can we protect ourselves? I find myself thinking about the weeks before Peter's murder, between the time when they discovered the depth of the fraud and Chris walking into their bedroom with an ax. Two questions haunt me. One, Did they recognize the fact that their son had psychopathic traits? Friends and coworkers said that Peter had described his son as a sociopath, so it's likely the answer to this question is yes. But the second one is harder. Once they recognized that Chris had psychopathic tendencies, was there anything that they could have done to help protect themselves? In his report on red-collar crime, Frank Perry has some suggestions. He recommends, for example, the parents do not allow children with psychopathic traits to have any access to their financial information, including passwords, and that they consider security measures like setting up a lockbox. But I find myself focusing on one last piece of advice. Don't leave blank checks out. Then I think back to the trail of blood that investigators used to track Peter Porco's last moments on Earth. In the kitchen, laying out in plain sight, the forensic team found a cashier's check for $100 in Christopher Porco's name made out to the Saratoga Springs City Court. So, as he went through his daily routine, right before he bled to death, Peter Porco made sure to take care of the unpaid parking tickets for the son who just killed him. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Red Collar is an audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>
1: A&E's crime and investigation event The Pursuit returns with a new unprecedented season of 60 Days In
0: This time we're going in as
1: a united front (laughs) together as one team
0: with one unified mission We are determined to expose what's really going on We signed up for this
1: Would you? 60 Days In, new episode Thursday at 9 Part of The Pursuit, a crime and investigation event only on A&E